on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you this week. How the hell are you? Have you been keeping sane during the election campaign? Uh, have you been monitoring your uh, your use of the socials and, uh, and your television exposure? Because if you can go down that wormhole, you can start finding yourself shouting at technology uselessly, providing advice to politicians and commentators that can't hear you. That is being said from personal experience. I can tell you it's that kind of... We've still got four weeks to go, I think. I've lost count. Anyway, creeping closer towards election day. Of course, you can keep up to date with all the union news and worker news at australianunions.org.au throughout the campaign. But on today's pod, uh, we're going to talk to somebody who's written a book, an essay really, in the National Interest series. He's a regular on the podcast. He's Richard Dennis, who is uh, a man of, uh, of great wisdom when it comes to economics. He's the chief economist at the Australian Institute and a foremost thinker on the issue of government spending and the public interest. So let's talk to Richard now about his new book. The book's called Big, The Role of the State in the Modern Economy. Richard, welcome to On The Job. Thanks for having me. It's been a dirty word for a long time in the sort of neoliberal age to talk about government being a positive force in people's life. And your new book or essay, Big, The Role of the State of the Modern Economy, goes uh, a long way to try and address this, doesn't it? Well, hopefully. I mean, we've just been told for decades in Australia that if we shrink the size of the public sector, we'll grow the economy. If we shrink the size of the public sector, productivity will grow faster. And bizarrely, if we shrink the size of the public sector, we'll have happier, healthier lives. But, you know, as I like to point out to people, Norway does exist. <laughs> you know, like when we, Does when it, we Richard? Around, does it, it really? Does. I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> In Australia, it's kind of considered impolite to point this out. But Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, these are the countries with the biggest public sectors in the developed world. They have the highest taxes in the developed world. And hold on to your hats. They've got the highest incomes. They've got the highest productivity. They've got the highest wages. And they've got the happiest, healthiest populations. So kind of everything we've been told is clearly wrong because the high-tax, big-spending countries are doing better than us, a lot better than us. But then most countries, nearly every developed country uh, in Europe in particular, has a bigger public sector than ours. And their economies are doing just fine. But more importantly, their societies are doing better than ours. They're spending less on health, less on education, and they're happier for it. Okay, so you start this particular essay by laying it right out there, by saying Australia's public sector isn't big enough to meet the challenges of the 21st century, that it isn't good enough to meet the expectations of the Australian public or well-governed enough to cope with the inevitable expansion heading its way. So if that's the case, why do politicians still see that there's capital, that there's votes to be won in spreading the fear of having government involved in our day-to-day lives? Look, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one is simply that running a scare campaign against tax is just easy. So it's very easy for the coalition in particular to say, not, oh, Labor's threatening to give you better health and better education, but Labor's going to tax you and your life's going to be a misery under Labor with all the taxes. So I think that's easy politics for the coalition. It's been hard politics for Labor. But unfortunately, I think Australians 
after decades of hearing this, Australians are now really unaccustomed to even imagining that a better public service would make their lives better. And let's be clear, in countries like Finland, there's no private schools, none. So no one spends anything on private schools and all the public schools are really good. And in a country like the UK, under that well-known communist Boris Johnson, (laughs) well, their national health system is far more national and health than ours. And in Australia now, every time you pull out your Medicare card, you pull out your credit card at the same time, that's because we don't have we don't have a world-class public health system in Australia anymore. So, yeah, unfortunately, the scare campaign about tax works and because people just aren't even used to hearing it, the positive story that says, look, if we improve the public sector, not only will the services be better, but your cost of living will be lower, your life expectancy will be longer and productivity will be higher. And you're right also that, What's become sort of like common or knowledge or knowledge that's passed on without foundation, that the idea that the smaller the public sector, the more efficient the economy is completely without foundation. It's absolutely without foundation. There's nothing in any economics textbook that says the public sector shouldn't be above a particular size. There's nothing in any economics textbook that supports the nonsense that Scott Morrison runs these days that if the tax to GDP ratio, the amount of tax we collect in Australia is above 23.9%, bad things will happen. This has got nothing to do with economics whatsoever, but these things have sort of just been ground into our public debate after decades of state and federal governments, including at times Labor governments, kind of pandering to this sort of story. But, you know, whether the issue is climate change, whether the issue is dealing with COVID, or even if the issue is, you know, Peter Dutton wanting to muscle up to China, everyone needs to spend more money to solve these big problems. No matter which problem you pick, we need a bigger state. And if you want to tackle all three, COVID, climate and defence, you're going to need a much bigger public sector than the one we have, which is okay because if our public sector got a lot bigger, that it'd still be smaller than the one in Sweden and Denmark and Finland. So the argument goes that if you raise taxes or you levy new taxes to fund a growth in the public sector to deliver the services that uh, are clearly needed, and as you said, those three major almost existential challenges, not only to the Australian economy but to the well-being of the society as a whole, are not going away. If you raise those taxes, you are going to drive business offshore, you're going to drive down market confidence, and you're going to drive down spending. Yeah, and, and that's the argument. There's just no evidence to back that argument up. <laughs> like, and that's that's the thing, right? It's not like everyone in Norway and Denmark and Sweden quit their job because taxes are high. Right? We know that didn't happen. Uh, we also know that the stage three tax cuts will deliver tax cuts of nine thousand dollars a year to people earning over two hundred thousand bucks a year. Does anyone think? that in the absence of those tax cuts, all the rich people were about to quit their jobs? I mean, how ridiculous. Yet those stage three tax cuts will cost $15 billion a year when they come in. So, yeah, we just, you know, yes, the argument is that if we don't cut taxes, something terrible will happen and no one will want to work anymore. It's a silly argument. And to be clear, there's no evidence to support it. 
Is there a disconnect in the community then that looks at a tax cut and goes, well, that's good economic management? Or people tend to think, because they've been trained to think that a tax cut means more dollars in their pocket. But at the same time, those same people when asked, do they want an, an inclusive, all-encompassing Medicare that looks after their health needs? Oh, yes, I want that. I expect that. But they're not connecting the two things together. Have we failed yeah, as, prog- as progressives and people who believe in this stuff to create and maintain and, and defend that narrative that you cannot have one without the other? Look, well, we have failed, but let's let's not be too hard on ourselves. We, we've been fighting against the odds. You know, the business community, the media, most of academia and a hell of a lot of politicians have been pushing this for a long time. So it's a tough fight. But the point that I make in the essay is that now's the time to give up and push back because here we are with the coalition government delivering the biggest deficits in modern history. Here we are with the coalition delivering the biggest public debt in modern history. And guess what? They're telling us not to be scared. They're saying, don't worry, it's okay. Well, guess what? They're right. (laughs) It is okay. But imagine if instead of spending $40 billion propping up companies like Harvey Norman, we'd spent $40 billion increasing unemployment benefits or building domestic violence shelters for women fleeing domestic violence. So it turns out that everything the Conservatives told us about deficits was wrong, (laughs) and it was. I told them that at the time. I certainly wasn't alone. Most economists did. Everything they said about debt was wrong. Well, okay, let's admit that and now say, so how can we move forward from here? And to make it simple, the last US president to deliver a budget surplus, the last one was Bill Clinton. The last UK prime minister to deliver a budget surplus was Tony Blair. No one cares. No one cares. It's a uniquely Australian insecurity. And now is the time to shake it off. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's sort of one of those tropes that uh, journalists fall back on if they don't, I guess they're not schooled or they don't think deeply enough about economics and society, that deficit spending is somehow inherently bad. So is there a lack of intellectual horsepower in Australia or is it just laziness within uh, our fourth estate who should know better about this sort of stuff or at least be informed and challenge the idea that uh, running a deficit at at a government level isn't necessarily bad and if you weigh up the outcome comes, uh, the societal benefits, that you know, that it's a false economy to claim that uh, running a deficit budget is detrimental to the community that it serves. Yeah, look, I don't mean to be flippant, but you'd have to ask them, you know, because economists like myself, and I certainly have not been alone, have been saying this for decades. And again, America does exist and England does exist. And no one in Australia seemed to notice that they haven't delivered a budget surplus in decades and that no one, it didn't matter. So why has the Australian media found that so hard to get their head around? I'm not sure, but they clearly have, but that's fine. I, you know, I'm always an optimist. Let's move forward here. We now know that you can deliver a $100 billion deficit, a trillion dollars in debt, and have a coalition government say it's no big deal. Well, okay, they're right. But what we need to argue about now is, well, what, what shape do we want all this public spending to be in? What things do you want more of? What things are you okay to have less of? Let's have that genuine, open, democratic debate because there's nothing stopping us spending more on aged care. There's nothing stopping us spending more on childcare. There's nothing stopping us spending more tackling climate change or, or investing in great public transport in our cities. There's nothing economic stopping us doing any of those things. Most of the countries we compare ourselves to do those things, but it's our lack of imagination, lack of confidence, 
and the overconfidence of those that have argued against it that have been holding us, holding us back. There's also the trope that public sector can't deliver efficiently and with the same quality as the private sector, that having uh, a government service delivering a particular service that might be able to be delivered by, by the private sector will inherently be beaten on price and quality by its commercial competitor. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I mean, everyone knows the American health system relies overwhelmingly on private provision and is one of the worst health systems in the developed world. Like the idea that if privatisation fixed problems, well, guess what? Someone would have, some country somewhere would have privatised everything by now and everything would be fine. But again, let's look at the scoreboard. Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, virtually no private schools. In some countries, no private schools. Best education outcomes in the world. So how can it be? How can it be that we tell ourselves that when we spend public money helping a school like Geelong Grammar that has an indoor equestrian arena, how can public money going to a school that can afford an indoor arena to learn to ride a pony on, how can we tell ourselves that's an efficient use of public money? It's ridiculous for the public sector to be helping a school that can afford an indoor pony club. Yet here we are in Australia telling ourselves that subsidising these public, these elite private schools is somehow good for the economy. I mean, it's ridiculous beyond words. It is, and you would laugh if it wasn't so serious, but it is serious, as you point out. And one of the other serious aspects to this, Richard, that you point out in the book is that because of the constant uh, negative talk and, and disparagement of, of, uh, of the public sector and public service and the public delivery of goods for the wider community is that younger people are you know, being driven away from the idea that uh, government working in the best interest of the public is actually something to celebrate, something to protect. In fact, they're losing their faith in the institutions of democracy itself as a consequence. Yeah, and that's one of the scariest things I realised writing this essay, that because we've spent decades saying that government's crap, government's wasteful, governments can't do anything good, we might as well deregulate and privatise everything, we've now got whole generations of young people that have grown up without ever hearing a positive word spoken about how government could make their life better. So guess what? They don't care much about democracy. They don't care much about government. Well, that's terrifying to me. So we can't blame them for thinking that. That's what we taught them. And I think, you know, it's not too late, but we really need to change direction fast. We all know there are moments in your life when super plays its part, both while working and in retirement. So it makes sense to be with a long-term, top-performing industry super fund like Australian Super. It's Australian, it's super, and it's yours. Past performance is no indicator of future returns. Read the PDS and TMD at australiansuper.com. You talk about the three big existential crises. One of them is climate change. And you've got an example in this essay about what happened at Collaroy Beach in 2016 where a huge storm happened and it, it destroyed the beach. Tell people about that and how, uh, once again, we saw you know people privatising the, uh, the, their gains and their financial gains, but uh, socialising the cost of repair and, and the losses when a storm like this damages you know, a very wealthy part of Sydney. Yeah, look, so what happened was there's some beautiful homes in that part of the country and with sea level rise, with more intensive storms, 
And with the combination of sea level rise and more intensive storms, we're getting more coastal erosion. We're getting, when storms hit, they're doing more damage to our coastline. And according to the, this government's own forecasts, a quarter of a million Australians could be affected by rising sea level rise in this century. So there's nothing hypothetical. We know this is happening. And what happened at Collaroy was houses were nearly destroyed. So we've spent millions of dollars now building enormous concrete bunker walls to protect these houses. So here we are as a society subsidising fossil fuels, subsidising the causes of climate change. Now we're spending taxpayer money trying to protect some of the you know most expensive houses in Sydney. Well, guess what? You can't protect the whole east coast of Australia with a wall. It's not going to happen. Both in terms of tackling climate change, government has a big role to play and we're not playing it. But in responding to climate change and trying to adapt to the climate change that's already locked in, the public sector is going to play a big role. So we're going to have to collect more tax because we're going to have to spend a lot more money protecting a whole bunch of people from climate change and even helping people move. Like Understandably, there are people in Lismore that do not want to move back into a house that's flooded three times in five years. The other issue that's, you know, parallel to this, and we're seeing this in real time as we speak, is the aged care crisis. We had a Royal Commission, another expensive Royal Commission, which had over 150 recommendations on how to deal with this crisis, particularly in those centres overwhelmingly run by the government uh, that have been in neglect. And you make it clear in this essay that this is a question of choices, that Australia does have the capacity to pay for what's needed to be done here. You You say we should be able to expect that every hospital, every aged care home and every foster home is clean and safe regardless of whether it is publicly or privately run. You know, we basically have the capacity to do this to make sure that uh, our elderly aren't uh, suffering from malnutrition and the disabled from bed sores and whatnot, that this choice is not an economic one as it's painted to be. And we've heard conservative politicians say that these uh, changes that need to happen to protect the well-being and dignity of vulnerable Australians are too expensive. But that's simply not true, is it? No, it's not true. It's not true at all. So, yes, the Royal Commission, and it was this coalition government that commissioned it, the Royal Commission said that we have malnutrition in our aged care homes. We have people with bed sores that are going untreated. We have people being strapped to their chairs and beds because there's not enough staff to keep an eye on them. That's the reality. That's Australia today. Let's look in the mirror and admit that. And Australia today can also afford to spend $5.4 billion building the Hell's Gate Dam in Queensland that for 80 years, 80 years, past treasurers and past prime ministers and past premiers have said was a crap idea. But because Barnaby Joyce has got the wood on this government because the, the National Party demanded a huge price for signing up for net zero, we in Australia can afford to build a 300 metre tall concrete wall with no cost benefit analysis, with no business case, we can afford in inverted commas to do that. And we actually look voters in the eye and say we quote can't afford to spend more money on aged care. Both the workers in aged care and the people eating gruel in aged care, the people strapped to their chairs in aged care. It is obscene and insulting for our elected representatives of one of the richest countries in the world to suggest we can afford $15 billion a year in stage three tax cuts 
and can't afford to implement the recommendations of their own Royal Commission into aged care. Is this a failure of imagination, not only amongst our policymakers and our politicians, but about amongst the wider community to imagine a different set of priorities, to imagine uh, you know, a publicly funded education system that would basically make redundant the profit-making industry of private education, for instance? Yes, it is. It's a lack of imagination, but you know, let's be sympathetic as to why. You know, unfortunately, civil society in Australia and individuals and their communities have been divided and played off against each other for so long that you can see why desperate people think that if only they can solve their one singular priority, maybe life will be slightly better. So think about what happens in the lead up to an election. Should we spend more on health? Should we spend more on education? Or should we spend more on Indigenous disadvantage? Choose. Fight amongst yourselves advocate, lobby, compete, and one of you might win. One of you might become the issue of the election. Well, what if all those groups pulled together and said, well, what if we scrapped the stage three tax cuts? What if we implemented a carbon price? What if we got rid of the diesel fuel rebate? What if we got rid of $11 billion a year in subsidies for fossil fuels? And what if we divvied that up amongst all the progressive causes that we all want? So, yeah, there is a lack of imagination. But there's also enormous stress and pressure and deliberate, by design, divisions built into our society that mean that pensioners and the unemployed see each other as rivals for a little bit of extra money rather than united in demanding more for both of them. Yeah, I love uh, the line at the back of the book which encapsulates the dilemma that people face. You wrote, democracy works when we use it well. We must be aware the siren song of cynicism and technocratic explanations for failures of will and resolve. We must be aware of that and to try to combat it ourselves when we sort of give in to it. So in essence, you're optimistic about the prospect for significant change in the re-establishment of a, a strong, vibrant public sector as a community asset is something we should be proud of as a national institution that actually builds stronger communities. I'm absolutely optimistic that we could do it because Norway exists, because Sweden exists, because New Zealand exists, because Boris Johnson's got a better public health system than we do. So, of course, it's possible. There's nothing economic preventing it. There's nothing democratic preventing people in other countries from doing it. So, you know, we have to, yeah, resist the siren song of cynicism, as I said, and think, hang on, someone smart's winning here. Let's stop saying politicians are stupid and don't understand. Someone understands because there's a lot of very rich people in Australia and we're about to give a lot of them a big tax cut. So don't pretend for a minute that no one's getting what they want out of this system, but most of us aren't. That's a failure of democracy. And it's a challenge for us all. But could it be fixed? Of course, because other countries are doing better than us. It's a very timely essay. It's uh, published now by Monash University Publishing. It's in the National Interest. That's the name of the series. It's Richard Dennis, uh, and it's big, The Role of the State in the Modern Economy. And uh, Dr. Dennis is a Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and I thank you, Richard, once again for being with us on the job. Uh, Thanks, Francis. Thanks for all you guys do. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd.
Richard Dennis there from the Australia Institute talking to us about his book, Big, The Role of the State in the Modern Economy. That's it for another edition of On the Job. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to give us a rating on your favourite app so people can find the information and the inspiration and you know share the pod on your socials and whatnot. And we'll catch you for the next edition of On the Job. Of course, you can go to australianunions.org.au for any further information about what the unions are up to. And of course, becoming a union member is the best way to make a contribution to a stronger and fairer workplace where you work. Bye for now.